0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Marketers and advertisers, brands big and small, you've been after a special someone for a while now. You think they're into you. I mean, you share the same interests, both passionate about the same stuff. Why wouldn't they be? Wait. There's a moment of silence. It's finally just you two alone. They're waiting. Go on, shoot your shot. You've got a voice. Use it now. Hearts are racing. Breathing becomes heavier. This is your chance to win them over. So what are you going to say? Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started.
1: Hi Hi there. Alistair Campbell here, editor-at-large of The New European. Write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport, lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, please join us. Subscribe for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. (laughs) Hello Snowflakes and welcome to the New European podcast, a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at theneweuropeancouk slash subscribe. My name is Steve Anglesey and what have we learned this week? Well, the government's bank suspended Matt Hancock's team from making payments to PPE suppliers at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic over fears that they were being taken in by fraudsters. Matt Hancock said this was particularly annoying as he just sent off his bank details in order to secure 50 million pounds worth of PPE that had been hidden by a Nigerian prince shortly before he died. Brexit Minister Lord Frost is looking to hire someone to search out all the exciting new opportunities following Brexit to demonstrate the benefits of the UK's departure from the European Union. So they're looking for someone more intelligent than them to find some stuff to prove that the last five years at a cost of 200 billion pounds has been worth it after all some ideas the government are apparently looking at can chasing wild geese be developed into a spectator sport and could the snark be hunted for its meat the early favorite for this job is ironically a frenchman but they've got to wait around a bit for him to give notice on his previous job his name is Godard. My first guest this week is an author and an activist who's written in The New European about how the Greens have become a growing force in British politics. Francis Wheatman, welcome to the podcast. It's very nice to have you.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: just remind us first of all about what the Greens achieved on Super Thursday, as it's called everywhere apart from Keir Starmer's house.
2: They've done phenomenally well in the local elections. Um, they gained representation on 18 councils. Um, they came third in the London mayoral election. And one of the things that's been really interesting to watch is the fact that previously the Greens have mostly gained in quite socially liberal areas, but in the latest local elections they've also made gains in former conservative strongholds like Suffolk. So that's been really interesting to watch.
1: That is interesting, and of course, you know, Sean Berry did well in the uh, in in the the London mayoral. Bristol, they became the largest party. I think they've taken. Uh, control of Lancaster Council now, and of course, kept Brighton. I think you yeah. you write that it's it, you write it's impossible to understate how much the Green Party's success is tied to the current woes of Labour. Let's let's talk about that more in a second, and what that means for the Greens. Are there other reasons for this impressive performance other than just a poor performance by Labour?
2: I think one of the many reasons that the Greens have done particularly well, it isn't simply that people have just moved to the Greens as a protest vote because they don't like the state of the current Labour Party. I think that's some of it, but not all of it. I think that what we're seeing is that the Greens have become a very pragmatic party. So if you look at the way that, for instance, they campaigned in Bristol, they were very keen on pushing local issues and listening to local residents. And I think that they're seeing some real gains because they've decided to kind of take the partisan politics out of out of this um, and really go for things like local issues and things that really speak to voters.
1: Yes, and I mean cl- the climate thing is is is, um, is is clearly beginning to cut through, isn't it? Um, I also read I, I read something the other day, and I can't remember um, I can't remember quite who who was talking, but certainly one of the a senior. Green Party uh, politician was was saying that they really have, because there's not much of a history of people voting for Green Party, you know, my dad voted for the Green Party, my granddad voted for the Green Party, they really feel that they have to fight for every vote. Away from solutions to the the climate crisis away from stuff like renewable energy and farming and the the, the stuff that they've been talking about with uh, electric cars and stuff like that. Those are obviously huge parts of their their platform, which are cutting through. What else are they offering that is different from what Labour are offering or or the the Lib Dems are offering?
2: They're they're very positive about having quite a localised model. So they're very good at supporting things like localised businesses in a way that, The Labour Party has partly embraced. You see that with things like Andy Burnham in Manchester and looking to a sort of more regionalised model. But I don't think they've embraced it as much as the Green Party does. And I think that as the Labour Party goes forward, I think that one of the things it should really be looking to do is looking at how best to utilise things like devolution and localised governance to be able to convert voters. And I think that's one of the things that the Greens has been really, really good on.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, they, they, that's absolutely right. They they certainly have. I mean, looking at looking at what they offered in in, in the general election in twenty nineteen, they talked about stuff like universal basic income. They talked about rejoining the the EU. They talked about legalising cannabis. They talked around PR. A lot of that is not too different from the, the platform that, that the Lib Dems were, were putting up. Why are they appealing to people more than the than the Lib Dems, do you think, who after all, you know, have got more seats in in, in the Commons, they've got a bigger place in local government, they've got a stronger party machine.
2: I think that the Greens are actually benefiting partly from the sort of global trend towards talking about Green issues in general. Um, we've seen things like the, the the global strike for climate and Greta Thunberg. I think that's really, really taking off and speaking to people. But I also think that there's still a residual amount of resentment amongst some left-wing voters about the Lib Dems' role in coalition with the Conservatives and their role in promulgating austerity. And I think that that, that is still hanging over the, conser- the, 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 the Liberal Democrat vote. Um, and I think that's going to continue to be a problem for them. Because, you know, like them or, or loathe the, Labour, the, the Liberal Democrats, what you're seeing is that people kind of view them cynically as the party that will just take power mm. um, and might throw their, their, their policies out of the window. And I think people have been left with a bitter taste in their mouths.
1: Yes, I, th- I think that is certainly true, and um, and we'll uh, we'll we'll go to some reader, uh, some listener comments uh, it shortly. And I think we do have one uh, one person who who's making that point quite clearly. Um, obviously, they have taken votes from from Labour at this election. Uh, what do you put that down to? Are those are those people? Are they people who are disillusioned? because they like Jeremy Corbyn? Is it because Keir Starmer is, has performed poorly in some people's minds? Is it because Labour have abandoned the, the kind of the green agenda that, that Corbyn set out?
2: I think some of the move from, from Labour to the Greens can be explained by people who are kind of disaffected with the Labour Party's shift to the centre. They don't like that there's no longer an emphasis on green issues. Um, but if I'm going to summarise the problem... I think the problem is that what we see with the Greens is a very pragmatic party that puts its legislative agenda first before its broader movement. Whereas in the Labour Party, we're seeing the same thing, but the inverse. Mm -hmm. So in the Labour Party, all we're seeing in the national press is we're seeing infighting. And so much of what Labour talks about is about its own members, its own activists. Whereas the Greens are much more open about they they want to pursue certain policies and not getting dragged down by infighting. In their own ranks. And I think that if Labour is going to try and gain any ground on, on, on the Greens in the future, what they really need to do is they need to flip that. They need to stop with the inv- infighting, stop talking about factional politics and really look at the policies that they could pursue. And I think going back to the idea of a Green New Deal, which was pushed under Corbyn and is quite a positive vision for the future, it would be really good for it. A lot of the Labour Party's campaigning in the last you know f- few years, the way that, that it's represented in the national press is quite negative. Um, It's either negative because of some of the more negative aspects of the Corbyn leadership, if you went back to looking at things like Labour anti-Semitism, but also the Labour Party's campaigning is very much drawing attention to things like Conservative Party sleaze um, and corruption, and I think that it's right that they do that, but I see no positive vision for the country. And in the next few years, I think it's going to be really vital for Keir Starmer um, to kind of have that broad vision for the country to try and win back voters.
1: I think that is absolutely right and you know, I, we re, I reeled off earlier some things that the that the Green Party stands for, and I, I I kind of you know I didn't have to look that up. I kind of knew I knew what they what they stood for, and it's quite hard for me as as somebody who's um, voted Labour consistently down the years to to identify uh, four or five key things that that uh, that Keir Starmer's government would do or or believe in. Do you think that there is an element of uh, is there is there a, a Brexit an EU? Um, element in the in people's disaffection for Labour and the Lib Dems, and people being drawn towards the Greens, because I mean they they seem to have a fairly clear view on this, where, whereas the, the the other two seem slightly muddled at the moment.
2: Um, I think that there is, but I also think that some of the results nationally cause some of that narrative into question. I think it depends on the locale. So I think in some parts of the UK, yes, you are seeing a backlash against the Labour Party based on their ambiguous stance towards Brexit. In the last five years um, but we're also seeing that the Greens are gaining in places like Sunderland which and you wouldn't expect and also the Liberal Democrats are gaining in in places like Sunderland as well sort of former red wall seats that are very quite leave areas um, and that really kind of throws into question the idea that you know at the forefront of people's minds in the local elections at least was Brexit this latest time around I don't know how much of a feature it did play um, as I say I think probably it played a bit but I don't think it's Necessarily, the main feature um, if you look at those former red wall seats. And I think it's going to be quite interesting to see how politics ends up being realigned post-Brexit.
1: Yes, I mean, we are due for a realignment, I think. I, I think it's it's almost inevitable, isn't it? Um, in Germany, we see the Greens are ahead in, in some of the polls. We're, we're, what are we now, four five months away from, from the election. We could even see Annalena Baerbock um Replacing Angela Merkel as as, as Chancellor, the, the Greens can't hope to have anything like that kind of. The Greens here can't hope to have anything like that kind of prominence without. PR? Can they, or, or can they? Can they break through in some other way, or influence in some other way?
2: I think we've got to look at the the difference between trying to for the Greens trying to gain seats and trying to gain influence. So I think it's going to be a really uphill challenge to for the Greens to try and get seats in in national elections. They obviously achieved it in Brighton. Um, it looks like they might be trying to target seats such as Bristol West um, because they've been doing particularly well in terms of council vote in that in that area. Um, but those are still Labour Party seats with with a very large majority. So Bristol West, Thangnam-Debonair has a 28,000 majority. That's massive. I don't know how they're actually going to manage to to get over that. I'm a bit sceptical that they can at this point. Um, but what I, what I think we're probably going to see is that because the Greens are gaining, the Labour Party at some point is going to notice the fact that the Greens are gaining and they might be a slight threat to them in some way, um, even if it's just on a localised sort of level. And I think that what what the power that the Greens are currently wielding is in terms of soft power. It's going to be in terms of shaping policy. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if the Labour Party does take a shift in the Green kind of direction to try and nip the Green threat in the bud. So I think in terms of its uh, its ability, in terms of the Greens' ability to try and gain seats, I think that it's going to struggle in national elections. But I think it is going to gain some influence in terms of policy.
1: What's what's the kind? I mean, we're three years away from a, a general election here, aren't we? What, what's the what would be the dream scenario for the the Greens over those three years?
2: I think uh, their dream scenario would be to gain both Bristol West and Sheffield Central. Those are the two main seats that they'd be looking at. Um, and I think they would want to try and solidify their position in second place in some constituencies. I think that would be their main goal. Um, but in in the interim, I think one of the things that they'll be really pushing for is. Um, Caroline Lucas had put forward a private member's bill called the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill um, that aims to try and hold governments to account if they fail to meet their international obligations on climate change. So the way things currently look, uh, the UK is set to fail on its obligations as part of the Paris Agreement. And I wonder whether that's going to end up taking up some of the agenda in in the national press more than them trying to gain seats um, in terms of trying to push legislation that will make a real difference. One of the things I noticed when I used to be in electoral politics um, was that when we were discussing with the press, if I was running for office um, on the few times I did, um, the Greens were often quite happy to sacrifice their chunk of airtime uh, in exchange for a candidate um, taking a question or making a point about climate change. And I think that really speaks to the pragmatism at the heart of their movement, that their goal Yes, of course they want to gain electoral seats, but they're also very, very policy focused in trying to to get positive change implemented to try and combat climate change. And I imagine they're going to be pretty successful at that because so far they've been making massive headway.
1: Now it's easy to see um, it's easy to see the Tories greening up a bit. It's easy to see Labour and the Lib Dems greening up a bit to try and counteract this threat, as you uh, as as you say. I mean, for for, for Labour. Is there pressure from the Greens to do some kind of deal where they, you know, they, they, they where they stand down in certain seats to to uh, to help Labour win? Is is that on the Green agenda? Do you think?
2: I mean, I wouldn't say no, but then uh, I know that the leader, well, the co-leader of the Greens, has ruled out an electoral coalition with the Lib Dems, which I find quite interesting. To me, mm. it, it indicates that they they're really up for a scrap, basically, electorally. And I don't know if that's going to end up setting a precedent or a bit of the tone in terms of what they're going to do electorally um, about standing down seats. I think we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Uh, It might be that things change over the next few years and they change their stance on that. But for now, I think they're quite keen on solidifying their place in in British electoral history.
1: Yeah. And I mean, they definitely do have their their eye on, um, as you say, on, on overtaking the Lib Dems to become... Um, well you know england's third party uh, certainly and uh, and certainly more of a force across britain what about um what about scotland where they have uh i mean they they kind of hold the the, the balance don't they at the moment they they've they've put the the nicholas sturgeon uh kind of indie ref to coalition over the top what's the position there i
2: think that it really depends on whether or not Scotland is going to be granted another independence referendum because a large part of the Scottish Greens sort of tactical superiority in a way in Scotland is the fact that they're viewed as a sort of more radical leftist alternative for anyone who supports Scottish independence. So I think if we see a situation whereby um, say Scotland is denied a second independence referendum, we might even see a surge in Green support amongst those who support um, uh, independence. We might not Um, I wonder what will happen if there is a second independence referendum, what that will do to the Greens positioning. Um, It might be quite strong in the sense that they position themselves as being both in favour of policies to protect the environment and Scottish independence. Um, Whereas the SNP, their main beef has always been Scottish independence. And yes, they're sort of centre left, but they don't have a sort of second flagship policy. So I mean I really don't know what's going to happen next, but it's it's complicated a bit when we look at Scotland because obviously the question about independence is is thrown in there.
1: And across the piece as a whole, is there is there when you talk about kind of tacking left, is is there a is there a thought that they might tack left generally, just to to you know to try to try and um, make the most of those Labour voters who liked Jeremy Corbyn, liked his agenda, see that the party is, is moving back towards the centre under Keir Starmer, or are they or are they a party are they a party of the, the centre or the left, do you think?
2: I think historically they've been a party of the left, but I think that the recent electoral results might call that into question in the sense that they may see that they can actually gain far more seats if they appeal to the centre ground um, and even to conservative voters. So I think it really depends on what they've decided to do in terms of their strategy. I think that if they try and appeal simply to the left, they might hit a slight problem in the sense that, a lot of left-leaning voters are socially conservative. And I think if they're going to make any massive electoral headway, particularly in national elections, they've got to appeal to that former Red Wall um, socially conservative element of, of leftist politics. Um, and they probably couldn't do that whilst pursuing a radical leftist agenda. doesn't mean that they won't do it, um, but I think that they've got to kind of work out the trade-off between those two positions.
0: We
1: asked listeners of this podcast whether they thought that, that the Greens would overtake the, or could overtake the Lib Dems um, in the next few years as England's third party. If I, if I read these out, if any, if any, uh, at the end, if any sort of jump out, please, uh, please come back on them. There was uh, just going back to, to what you were talking about there. John Gower says uh, he doesn't see the the, the Greens uh, taking uh, over from the Lib Dems anytime soon. He says it, it only amounted, their success only amounted to a, a fraction of the Lib Dem council wins. It's difficult to see how a joint appeal to Corbyn Easter's rural conservatives and none of the above vote uh, is going to last very long. That's I think that's that's interesting.
2: I think there's a, a, a going to be a real question as to how they kind of solve that, that, that quandary, that dilemma, um, because they're going to have to pick a side, I, I would suggest, over yeah. the next few years. Um, because they can't appeal to everybody. As much as politicians might want to, they're going to alienate at least part of the electorate. And I think that decision is going to be really the question as to what happens to the Greens in the future.
1: Yes. Uh, At Catrollo says, yes, they will take over from the Lib Dems. They're right on message for these times where a growing proportion of people understand that the survival of civilization depends on addressing climate catastrophe, mass extinction and inequality. Um, on the other hand, we've got At Frozen Warning, who says they will take over from the Lib Dems, but only if they continue to pretend that they're not just the crank far left, <laughs> that they really are. Are they really the crank far left?
2: I think that if there's going to be a PR problem for them, it's going to be them trying to distance themselves from extremist climate groups like like Extinction Rebellion, um, whose purpose, you know, might be quite honourable, but th- their actions and sometimes their illegal protests are going to put off some middle ground voters. So I think uh, in the future, th- th- there's going to be a bit of a question as to how they kind of separate themselves from that, if they're going to make any headway.
1: Karen Phoenix Hollis says a lot of disaffected Labour voters who are pro-EU, have left Labour and joined the Greens. More that do so will encourage more to join, so on and so on. Uh, and logic Deba- Logic debaters says um, the Tories own Brexit, Labour appear to be embracing it. Either the Lib Dems or the Greens could really capitalise on this. They need to push their, pro- their closer ties to the EU out there. Um, I wonder whether that is something that they're going to do. Uh, And then finally, um, a couple of uh, a a couple of things we talked about sort of shifting, um, shifting sands of of, uh, politics and realignment. Roland Scales says if and when Scottish independence kicks in, there's going to be a massive paradigm shift. Sit back and look out for the fireworks. Mm Edward Lafferty says politics <laughs> is in flux and Labour and the Lib Dems are in decline needing reinvention the Greens have got a great chance of emerging from this period very much strengthened that's that's kind of how you see it isn't it
2: Yeah completely
1: Yes and Jeff Brewer says the 20 20- 12 coalition was a huge mistake which irretrievably broke the lib dems which i think you've also which i think you've also said francis uh, thank you so much for joining us it is um it is going to be uh, a, an amazing time the next three years are going to be an amazing time in british politics and i do think the greens are going to have uh, a huge part in what uh, what comes next i hope we talk again soon francis thank you so much thank you hi This is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe,
3: Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe.
1: Now, if you uh, ever get the impression that this government exists only to troll... Uh, centre-left Europhiles like you and me. The idea that Paul Dacre, who is editor of the Daily Mail at it's pro-Brexit craziest, might become the head of Ofcom, is just going to confirm that. Liz Gerard, our media correspondent, is joining me. Liz, welcome back to the podcast. Can Go you ahead. remind the listeners about what Ofcom does and why Paul Dacre would be such a terrible choice to run it?
3: Well, um, Ofcom is an enormously powerful banger um, It's it's um, far more than, you know, than all the all the other little ones that you think. Oh, that just does that. It covers um, broadcasting, the Royal Mail, um, the internet, um, broadband supply. Um, mobile phone supplies, every, every, every aspect of our communications is is watched over by Ofcom. So he, it is a hugely powerful um, position. We, we Everybody tends to think about it in terms of the BBC, or you can't put Paul Dacre in charge of the BBC because he hates the BBC. Um, he hates Channel 4. He can't even turn on... computer and he's going to be in charge of computing um he he hates the 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 big tech giants lots of people do he's going to be in charge of that he's there's the government is putting through this new quotes online harm legislation he'll be in charge of, of making sure that 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 is complied with. It's extraordinary that he should even be considered, really, given his um, antipathy to the people he's supposed to be, would be regulating. Um, You would think that that would exclude him straight away, really. And also his lack of knowledge about the technical side of stuff.
1: I mean, talk to me about that, because, you know, we're saying he's a technophobe, but the Daily Mail, of course, has got one of the biggest websites in the world. Is that anything to do with Paul Dacre and and when you say he doesn't know how to turn on a computer is is that is that hyperbole or does he actually not know how to turn on a computer
3: okay so it's probably hyperbole to say um that he can't turn on a computer but I don't think he from 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 everything you read and hear about him he's he's not a willing person he's not chained to his laptop the way many of us are most of the time Um, Yes, the Mail Online is um, a huge, huge website, um, which of course he as editor of the Daily Mail liked to distance himself from um, as as much as possible whenever anybody took took the Mail Online to task, Streets of Shame or whatever, not Streets of Shame, Sidebar of Shame um, and such like he would say, no, it's different, it's nothing to do with us. Although he of course was editor in chief of it just as he is now still.
1: Amazing, and he—I think he does have a a typewriter in his office, doesn't he? And he's known to. Uh, have pages of the internet printed out for him when he's um, when he wants to to discuss something that's on mail online. Um for people who don't know much about Paul Dacre where did he where did he come from and I mean he was editor of the daily mail for an awful long time what's what's where did he come from what's he doing uh what did he do when he was there and, and what is he doing now because I'm guessing he would be expected to give up his his job he couldn't do his the job that he's doing now and be head of off company.
3: I can't imagine that he could. No. Um, apart from anything else, I mean, Ofcom is, is is as near as you get with these sort of high flute and high played things as a full time job. I think you're required to spend um, is it three days a week or three days a month? It must be three days a week. It's a hundred and forty two thousand pound a year job. Um, nice. So um, you know that's that's not just a little sideline, is it? Look at the the. the, the um, job description here somewhere but i've got so many bits of paper i won't find it until we finish recording Uh, um, are you thinking of
1: applying yourself liz
3: no the interview's all been done oh they've
1: been done that's (laughs) Um, what a shame
3: and anyway i couldn't possibly because it requires honesty decency (laughs) And all those sorts of things that, that that Mr Dacre and Mr Johnson have in spades, and that I'm totally lacking in. So I wouldn't get past the first post.
1: Um, he was a reporter, uh, wasn't he? I mean, we've got there's a great picture oh, in the newspaper this week of him in the yes, boxing ring.
3: It's wonderful, isn't it? Yes, he. I think you'll have to bear with me because I might get this completely wrong. But I think he started out as. Um, when he was a schoolboy, he, he, he had a holiday job as a, as a messenger at the Express. I think the Express or the Sunday Express, something like that. Um, then he went and he worked there in his gap year. Um, then he, he went to the University of Leeds where he studied English. And when he came out, um, he went to work for the Express. Um, he, he, went, he, he spent some time in America, He he was in Manchester to start with, I think, and then he came back down to London. At some point, he was headhunted by David English to join the Mail. And I think he was their bureau chief in America. I'm doing this off the top of my head. I don't tend to have people's biographies very accurately in my head. But I think he I think he, he went he was the New York Bureau chief for the mail and then came back to London and rose through the ranks. Um and then took over when 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 he was I do remember when I was at the Times he was mooted to come to us. Um and that was a really scary time for us. So that was quite interesting because he hadn't, obviously he hadn't taken on the editorship of the Mail at the time and so he was well enough known for us to be scared that he might come to us <laughs> but he didn't apparently because he was too concerned that the proprietor might interfere and he thought a, a newspaper should be the editor's property not the proprietors which is some one thing i suppose i agree with him on yeah
1: um, I mean, and, one, one of the reasons that you must have been wary about him is is that you know as well as um as well as turning the the, the daily mail into a i mean it was a, a high spending uh newspaper beforehand but he's i mean he's really ratcheted it up the the, the daily mail is is um you know depending on your depending on your taste is, is either um, the voice of middle England or it 's a very much nastier voice um, but it's uh, but but you could never say that it 's a thin product its uh, it 's extremely well put together um, and uh, so i mean he 's known for that he 's also known for uh, the the brexit craziness that we spoke about before but in 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 our circles he 's known for having a, a really fearsome temper what what do we know about that and and is there still a, a culture of ruling by fear in fleet street or was he the last one
3: um i think i i don't know i haven't been there for years i'm out of touch but i think that there was a mellowing um but the times was always a a gentlemanly sort of place to work and when it did move into a more aggressive sort of tone um it 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 jarred and it and and it was re, re, reduced but I'm not sure I, I suspect that these days it's a lot harsher than it was um the the Dacre, the Dacre era um the wonderful book about male men who's embarrassed I can't remember the name of the author it's a fantastic book Um, talks about how they had the crying steps on a fire escape that people would go away and weep after being told Um, Charlie Wilson said to me once um, a few years back that he whatever you thought of Dacre that there was nobody in the in the, in the entire business at any time, whoever stamped themselves on every aspect of the paper. And that was the thing was that he was, he, he was so involved in everything from page one to, as you say, huge papers, page 120, and every single page had his stamp on it he knew exactly what he wanted how it wanted it to be it was the most professionally put together paper by a long long way you had to admire that if you didn't admire what the actual result was yes. um, but there were there were there were all sorts of things that um, a photographer for friend of mine said that um, he used to, he used to go and 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 There'd be a, a story. Um, this was, you know, people are saying, "Is Fleet Street racist?" No, we're not. Of course, we're not racist. And he would say that um, he'd get to the house where he'd been sent to take a picture, and they'd have. To, in in the old days, they'd have to borrow the the the, the person's landline because um, it was before the mobile phone time, and um, the the desk would say, um, "Is she pretty?" And he'd say, well, depends on your taste. Is she blonde? No. How not? How much not blonde? Uh, right. Not at all blonde. I'll come home then. And right. so, you know, there was all this code. And <sighs> I think that there's hardly anybody who who hasn't got a, a, a an example of where somebody's sort of been sent 300 miles to interview someone and then been sent back home because they're the wrong colour.
1: Good God. Uh-huh. I mean, so, you know not exactly a collegiate worker, um, He um, hates the BBC, hates Channel 4, he's a technophobe. If he's so wrong for this job, why, why, does, why on earth does he stand a chance of getting it?
3: If, if he gets this job, um, as I said in that piece, it really will be the greatest display of how rotten this government is, and it is rotten to the core. Boris Johnson wants him. He's let it be known that he wants him. So if he doesn't get him, there's... Going to be a, a huge loss of face um you know he stepped he he you know gave way on charles moore he wanted his dream team um so he wanted charles moore as the chairman and that didn't happen um i can't see how looking at the job description and looking at the background and, and cv right down to the fact that he's a shy person who doesn't like to appear in public um and he's the part of the job is to be an ambassador, to be out and about. Um, he'd have to face a public um, confirmation hearing in front of the DCMS. Um, I can't. I. I just can't see it. I can't see how you can marry that man with that CV, that background, that profile, with that job description. Um,
1: yes, it's hard it's, to see it, isn't it? It's,
3: it's, it's very hard to, to put put the two together. So if it gets to the point where he's I, the, 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 um, the selection panel puts forward names of people that could be considered, um, and it can say that somebody is unappointable. The idea is that the minister then chooses who he wants from the people who could be appointed or not. He's not they don't actually put forward a name and say, um, we suggest you appoint this person. Um, if, if they want to appoint someone deemed unappointable, then they have to go back to the, to the, um, public appointments commissioner, Peter Riddle and consult with him. And Peter Riddle has told me, um, that that's happened one or two times in the last five years. And in each occasion, they just reran the entire process. Right. Um, now, of course, what we don't even know is whether Dake has even been interviewed because we don't know who's been interviewed. We don't know who the candidates are. Um, we're just all assuming this because Boris Johnson has let it be known that he wants him, he wants him to do the job. The thing is that ministers are so keen to get, or well, this government is so keen to get its complete control of everything that they even want to get rid of this last little tiny obstacle of having to go back to the commissioner and saying look can we look at this when they when they want someone who's been rejected as as, as
1: totally unsuitable it's i mean he, if he doesn't get the job um and, and let's hope that he doesn't you're right aren't you i mean that there is there is a sort of a, a, a culture war on on, uh, on the British British institutions as they currently exist. And there is a uh, a kind of a, I was going to say a master plan, but it's not even as cunning as a master plan. There's a, there is a a plan to sort of pack Tories and Brexit believers into key positions, isn't there? What's, what's your sort of view of Oliver Dowden, who is in charge of making a lot of these appointments? I'm not, I'm
3: not, I'm not, um, I'm not... A fan and, and I'm 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 nervous of him because he's one of these people that's sort of below the radar a bit. Um, I think you have to remember that that um, Dowden and Robert Jenrick, both sort of quite low-key ministerial positions, are Boris's two real friends in government. They go back a long way. Um, God, I just called the Prime Minister Boris. I can't
1: believe that. Alice oh, Campbell will be furious.
3: Yes, I'm furious myself. But um, they are his. They are. They are part of his coterie. All the, all the high-profile people are maybe Brexit pure, um, or not. I mean, Liz Truss has got in there. She's not Brexit pure.
1: Is she? No, or Hancock. You know, but
3: <laughs> but um, well, I don't know how long he'll last once once he's had this this rotten job. <laughs> But these two are the ones to watch, I think. generic and Dowden—they're—they're they're the true Johnsonistas, and they're both. You know, planning is a huge thing for generic and and and, and deregulating all sorts of development plans, which the Tories hate because it means that is one thing to say they want—they want, they want a, um, a predisposition to. Um, giving consent to build everywhere but the Tories don't want it in the shires um, and you've got this culture thing and you've got the taking on the internet giants you've got the museums and, and this whole culture of all this I mean in that Queen's Speech the whole business about making sure that you can't no platform people in in universities which is obviously comes under the education department, but it's all of a piece. It's it's about stifling any view that isn't actually the one that they want to project. Um, they want, you know, sort of, Daban was telling the DCMS committee that he thought it was quite right that if public money was being spent, that, that, that the government should have some say in how museums display stuff well, you
0: can't, you know, it's not,
3: it's not the way it works, and they want their tentacles everywhere, it's like the idea that, that, that it's about allowing free speech, ensuring that right-wing voices are heard, it's, it's, and stifling the protest that might stop them. Um,
1: it's, it's a worrying, uh, a very worrying scenario. Uh, Liz, it's been great to talk to you, fingers <coughs> crossed. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't get it, uh, yes, yes. and I believe, I, I believe. Sorry, go on.
3: I think Ed Vasey is probably favourite.
1: Let's well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. Let's hope <laughs> against hope, Liz. I will catch up with you uh, soon about uh, about another uh, another press giant. I think uh, I think there's a Rupert Murdoch thing in the in the offing. So uh, so let's talk soon, Liz Gerard. Thanks very much. <laughs> And finally, on the new European podcast, it's the Hall of Shame, our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather, things that just annoy me generally. Let's start with Matthew Lynn of the Daily Telegraph. I don't know if you remember, but Brexiteers told us that one of the first things leaving the EU would do was give a a boost to our fishing industry. And then they, they also said that even though financial services wasn't included in the oven ready trade deal that David Frost did, the EU would be so desperate to uh, to have our access to our financial services and to give them access to the single market, that it would roll over and give us a brilliant deal on their, them too. But now the Brexit zealots seem to be insisting that neither fishing nor access to the single market for financial services is going to matter a jot on the sunlit uplands ahead. Matthew Lynn in The Telegraph wrote a piece at the weekend. He called the fishing industry that was supposed to be saved by Brexit an irrelevance. He added... Cornwall and St Helier are hardly crucial to the 21st century economy we're meant to be trying to create. He said fishing was small fry, and it was, and I'm quoting, just a few cod and mackerel. Well, it isn't just a few cod and mackerel, is it? It's it's the people who bring in the cod and mackerel, It's, it's actual people. He then went on to claim that the EU market is no longer worth making any concessions for. That's a quote. Who can doubt him when financial services is only worth a measly £130 billion a year to us, with a third of our exports there going to the EU? Alack, harumph, egad, it's on Corner. And Anne appeared on TV's Jeremy Vine show this week, uh, and this is what she said. She said, Prince Harry is a spoiled brat. I'm thoroughly fed up with him. I think the best way forward with this would be to ignore him altogether, which is what I do in my regular column for The Express. It is a Harry-free zone. Well, I think you might have guessed what's coming next. I looked at Anne Whittacombe's columns in The Daily Express. March the 11th, a huge diatribe about Prince Harry. Harry will come to regret disparaging his family. Having failed to learn from history, his family is over here working its socks off to help, support, and encourage while he sits in a Californian mansion complaining about them. And Anne Widdecombe's column in the Daily Express, April the 14th, a huge diatribe about Harry and Meghan. This self indulgent ex royal, I find it difficult to believe any reconciliation is possible as long as accounts of conversations are going to be blabbed by his wife to her American TV presenter friends. I stopped reading there, So there you go. That's Anne Widdicombe having a Harry Free Zone in her Daily Express column while writing all about Prince Harry. But our winner in this week's Hall of Shame, if you can have a winner in the Hall of Shame, is Nigel Farage. You might have seen that the nicotine-stained man frog is on a speaking tour of America with free tickets available just by registering online. And that's what thousands of people did when he appeared at the Pittsburgh Airport Marriott on Monday evening. But What a shame. A lot of the season ticket holders, the ticket holders rather, seemed unable to turn up. 2,981 people booked tickets, but only 21 people made it. Six of those were part of the Farage entourage. I've been dying to say that all day. One was Nigel Farage, making a grand total of 14 people who actually went to see Nigel Farage. A spokesman for the company that booked him on a speaking tour for the US said, they have miscalculated his popularity, which is a bit like the great scene in Spinal Tap when the managers asked about sparse crowds at their gigs. Are they past it? Someone says, no, no. Uh, he says, their appeal is just becoming more selective. What a phrase. But the other thing I noticed about Nigel Farage this week was that he tweeted this. The number of migrants that have crossed the English Channel this year is already approaching 3,000. That is double the number that had crossed by this point in 2020. But it was Nigel Farage. Farage, wasn't it? I had that appalling poster during the referendum, breaking points, and in small print under the headline, it said, we must break free of the EU and take control of our borders. And you know what? We did break free of the EU, the EU, didn't we? And desperate people are still coming here. Nigel Farage was lying when he said leaving the EU would stop people coming, just like Brexiteers have lied about farming, about fishing, about Northern Ireland. Every bit of it's a pack of lies. And week by week, we get closer to not to a racist breaking point, but to our tipping point when people begin to see this disaster for what it really is. That was the New European podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thank you to my guests. Thank you to you for listening. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews really mean a lot to us. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Thanks very much. See you soon. Here you go. (laughs)
0: next time if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love experiment with something new just focus on your voice advertise on more than a hundred thousand podcast shows with acast head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started